Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Professor Kara. Thank you so much for joining us in the podcast. I would like to ask you how you would like to define yourself for the audience who may be first time listening to you. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Marva, for inviting me here. It's a real pleasure to be part of this podcast. Uh, um, uh, how to define me? I, I guess I'm a, I, I would say I'm a professor of uh, mechanical uh, um, engineering and of applied physics at the California Institute of Technology. And I have uh, a deep interest in developing new materials for different engineering applications that span from sensors to actuators, robotic surfaces, and uh, uh, medical devices. Wonderful. Yeah. So I'm curious about your childhood. How was your childhood was being just <laughs> as technology as a kid? Do you have any memories about that? Of course I have memories. Um, I had a very happy childhood. Um, I think, uh, I, I, you know, I was always very curious. I was always uh, very uh, dynamic and uh, somewhat of a fearless uh, child. I think uh, I had a lot of freedom in my, in my childhood, freedom to build, freedom to uh, travel. It was very different then. I grew up in Italy where, uh, you know, the concept of helicopter parenting is, was, was, was non-existent at the time. So I had a lot of free time and a lot of free space to roam around the neighborhood, you know, build uh, contraptions, uh, design system structures, houses, components. And uh, in the rainy days, I spent uh, endless hours playing Legos. <laughs> I guess that's what got me where I, where I am now. Wonderful, wonderful. So do you remember what's the first maybe material you designed uh, or maybe develop a new material maybe before grad school? Do you remember any, any, any of this? I mean, as a, as a, in terms of uh, like play or in terms of research, like at what stage in, in career life are you thinking? Maybe both if you can tell the play and the research as well. You know, in terms of play, I spent a lot, a lot of time outside and I was fortunate to have, uh, you know, space that was unused. So it was not constructed areas. It was not a park that was uh, neatly maintained. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of uh, junk all over uh, that yeah. was lying around and I could just put things together, you know, from combining soil and, uh, and uh, you know, like messy, messy materials and, you know, leaves I would find around all the way to, to components uh, of chairs that people would leave out. And I, and I remember I, I loved to build structures where I could climb and, and, uh, and mm. play, play with. I think uh, that uh, maybe now has shrank to, you know, in my current research, these structures became more the structured materials that are designed and built with a purpose and more knowledge of mechanics but but the enthusiasm and the energy in doing them uh, didn't change wow wonderful so maybe because you know what, what maybe is the most interesting thing about material science we knew because if you define what is material and what do you think something was very fascinating about material science while you're working right i think uh, the first time i really got passionate about uh, materials and, and material science was was back in undergrad in which uh, 
during my undergraduate uh, degrees in uh, in mechanical engineering in Italy, I somehow had the sense that materials were the seeds of technological innovations. You know, even if you think about it in terms of historical progression of ages, you know, in the history of humankind, we call it, you know, the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, and and it was always determined by the fact that uh, we as humans, engineers, creators, uh, have been able to uh, either extract new materials or design new materials or alloy new materials in different ways that, you know, enabled progress, like uh, the uh, relatively economic production of steel enabled the Industrial Revolution and, and so on and so forth. And so I figured, uh, you know, if I could develop the materials of the future, I was asking myself, uh, you know, what kind of technological innovations uh, would be possible. And so back then I, I specialized in, in materials and especially the university where I went had a program in metallurgy. So I, I tried to take as many materials and solid mechanics courses I could take uh, before graduation and then continued on as a master's and PhD students uh, at UC San Diego uh, specializing in material science. Mm -hmm. Great, great. So maybe I can just ask you how how you see the definition of material in the context of soft robotics. How do you see them as passive or active? If you can't see, tell us what you see in that area. I think soft robot the robotics uh, really offer an enormous opportunity for merging two separate disciplines that so far have been in a way somewhat silosed into, in, into two different groups of scientists and researchers, material science and, and roboticists. And why I say that is that soft robotics intrinsically require the development of materials that are highly deformable, materials that are often nonlinear in their responses, but also multifunctional. They combine, for example, responsiveness to external stimuli like uh, temperature, humidity, chemical, um, environment or uh, or electrical fields and and those type of multifunctionalities require you know very complex designs of control systems for example so I think this this merging of advancing new materials designing materials with unprecedented properties with the field of controls and dynamical systems mm -hmm. are you know essential almost equally important in the development of soft robotics so where where for soft robotics we think of uh, robots that can deform and interact with the uh, surrounding environment in a, in a safe way but they may also combine other functionalities like uh, shape morphing like color changing um, as well as locomotion and gra grasping and gripping that uh, you know are also possible with conventional robots today. Mm -hmm. So maybe a quick question because I ask this question all the time. Do you think we have deep understanding of the material when it comes to modeling and how they behave? Do you think we have deep understanding for that? You know, I think mechanics of materials have come really a long way. However, there are still uh, phenomenal challenges in understanding materials at the fundamental level, especially at the level that would be required for soft robotics. Let me think about, you know, some of the challenges that come to mind in the mechanics of materials is, you know, understanding fundamental concepts like what is the non-local coupling between deformations, mm. the superposition of functions in the stresses and strain field, you know, how do you predict or design for nonlinearity and multi-stability or uh, 
what is the impact of uh, materials chemistry and composition on the on the mechanical properties and or, or functional properties you want to get and so i think until we get a fundamental understanding of those properties and, and and fundamental concepts it's very hard to have tools that allow for design and and that's what i find tricky especially as an experimentalist is is the lack of predictive design tools that allow you to solve the so-called inverse problem and to say i need i need to have for example a, a robotic octopus right but how <laughs> how do we design it it's yeah. still it's still hard because we don't know the fundamental functions that govern this this that govern um, these complex behaviors mm -hmm. do you think maybe modeling here is not maybe not discovered we will what kind of level of modeling we have to go for which tool do you think is very beneficial here it's it's hard to say i think modeling you know right now the tools we use i would say in in modeling are uh, are tools that are quite uh, exact in the sense of predicting for example the mechanical responses i'm, I'm thinking like uh, the use the ubiquitous use of, of finite element however you know as a design tool finite element is is uh, is a hard one to use because it's very computationally expensive right so solving the famous inverse problem um, when you when you want to design a structure and you don't know how the structure is supposed to look like, it's uh, it's very hard. It's just simply not uh, not not efficient enough, not sustainable from a computational costs point of view. So on the other hand, you know, other tools like discrete order models that are often more efficient lack the ability to map often one-on-one -on -one with specific geometries of the structure if you think of a composite material for example mm -hmm. so i think there is a place where you know there is a there is a there is a gap of um, of knowledge there where i think we can learn to develop new models that perhaps marry the best of both worlds the continua and the discrete uh, perhaps learning from data, right? There's a, an explosion of data-driven tools uh, um, nowadays that are, are you know, are, are in a way exalting and hyped towards, uh, you know, towards new methods for, for design and computing. And I, I mean, I'm an experimentalist, an experimentalist, and I have uh, I have great hopes on the advance, advancements of, of computational science because I feel like today as experimentalists we are a little stuck in an edisonian world of experimental design where we we think of something like oh this should work you try it and then it doesn't work and then you change it a little and it, it's just not very efficient and it doesn't necessarily lead to an optimum mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that i think this is all very excellent point and i think yeah we still have a limitation here and gaps mm. So I'm curious to ask you about the material design and the structure, because I think it's mm -hmm. very interesting how this morphology and the structure is also interesting in the behavior. And I, I see you are you're doing a really great job in 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 this line because no one just really explain how the structure goes hand in hand with the material design and game changing the geometries we select. When it comes to, for example, combining two material, what kind of geometry for the other material we have to embed in the other material. So uh, we didn't find some how studies about that to reduce risk concentration or having interesting formation for multi-material. Yeah. Yeah, you touched right on the on the hot spot here. I feel like 
you're right. I mean, I think the last decade or so um, has seen an explosion of these uh, advances and developments of ever more complex uh, 3D structured materials. And I think, uh, you know, that has been made possible by advances in manufacturing. Like now there are 3D printers that can, you know, 3D print multi-material in, uh, you know, impossibly or vastly varying scales, you know, from nanometers to to, to concrete, you know, that can can 3D print houses. And I think everything in between is covered, right? So we can can 3D print and fabricate um, very complex geometries uh, with different materials and sometimes combining different materials. You can 3D print composites, uh, for example. I think the challenge there is, is what you mentioned, which is, but how to choose, you know, which material goes where and what is the optimal geometry? And I think that's uh, perhaps still where the biggest challenge is. is. It goes back to the question we discussed before of the computational tools and how can we combine Topology optimization that determines the geometry of the microstructure or the structure of the material and the material optimization that determines what constitutive properties of what materials should go in every voxel of this three-dimensional space. I think, I think that's still a challenge that's completely open. So especially for, for uh, you know, those of us in the community uh, or, or all the people in the community developing the, developing numerical models, that's certainly a, an exciting gap to mm-hmm. fill. Yeah. I guess ask you, uh, first of all, that kid, because you have the both expertise in the computational side and material science, what could be significant parameters you have to look for in this problem? Because sometimes we have this kind of communication between material science and robots. So it's tricky sometimes to figure out what could be the significant parameters you have to consider in that case. What do you mean for prompters? like young models, mechanical parameters, mm. parameters or electrical, which is, I think, is very significant to you in that case. Yeah, you know, actually, this is a, this is a question I get asked a lot, uh, um, because the, the question is, what is it, what's maybe more of, uh, more, more than prompters, I'm thinking, what is the function we want to optimize, right? I think in many of the papers I see, and, and we are, we're, we're doing the same in my own group, many of the papers try to target exotic properties. Like we started talking about negative Poisson's ratio or multifunctionalities or, but the question is maybe coming from a more practical side is what do we really need, especially in the robotic sense, right? And what type of soft robots are the ones that we want to target first? And is, for example, is it something like a soft exoskeleton that augments humans mobility or, is it something that um, mimics, for example, the natural world by camouflaging in the environment, right? And I think depending on what is the function and what is the objective here, the practical applications, we can then determine the, the so-called prompts or, or, uh, or functionalities that we want to optimize for and design for. But until we know exactly what problem we're trying to solve, it's hard to say, oh, Young's modulus is more important than say stiffness mm-hmm. or, uh, or transparency. I think those are very much a function of the problem we're trying to solve here. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. So we can ask you about the geometric nonlinearities and the material nonlinearities. How do you see the coupling both of them in an interesting way to have this maybe, yeah, replacing the control? Because you speak about how we can design a material that can play at the machine. So how, how do you see the geometric and nonlinearities? You can explore them in, in an interesting way. 
So I have a soft spot spot in my heart for non-linearities. <laughs> That's been what really was the yeah. the beginning of my career since I was a PhD student was to deal with you know these geometric non-linearities in particular. I remember back then I was studying contact problems between between particles. And, uh, and I was fascinated by the richness of the mechanical phenomena that arise when you are able to control nonlinearities. You know, in many engineering designs to date, if you look at the objects around, the, around us, you see that we tend to swipe the nonlinearity under the rug because nonlinearity is scary. It's often unpredictable. It's hard to model and it can lead to chaotic slash catastrophic uh, events that are undesirable. And so, so far we tend to linearize everything and say, no, 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 the system is linear. Everything is predictable. Elasticity is there for us to help. And I think that if we learn to tame nonlinearity and use it to our advantage in design, then a lot of new properties, a lot of new functionalities uh, um, can be embedded even in a single material system. And this is um, true for both material nonlinearities, which are nonlinearities that arise in the constitutive response of a material, like think about rubber elasticity, mm -hmm. as well as uh, geometrical nonlinearities like uh, buckling that can be phenomenally useful when you're trying to create something that's soft and that can shape more. Um, the hard part here, the challenge is, is how to tame them, right? And, and it goes back uh, once again to being able to model them because today there are not really good tools neither analytical nor computational that can lead can um, can deal easily easily i mean cost effectively so fast and and easily in terms of um, capturing the real behavior that can deal with uh, either large deformations that come from rubber elasticity or buckling instabilities these are super challenging problems uh, to compute in the forward model, let alone to design for in the inverse model. Yeah, and, and do you think how it could be replaced a machine? For example, it could be a controller itself. What's your thought about the traditional control we use already? Can we replace no, it? No, I think. Yeah, I, I see your question. You're saying, you know, can the material replace uh, yeah. the controls basically? And I think. To a certain extent, for simple functionalities, it is possible to envision embedding within the constitutive response of materials, a, um, a control. Where, where here a control, I'm thinking of a time-dependent response of the constitutive uh, of the constitutive material. Think about now this has been known for for decades, right? If you think about creep in uh, in, uh, in in many polymeric systems, you know there is a known time-dependent response of polymers to, for example, temperature or or radiation or or solar exposure or whatever. So I think we can learn to exploit some of these time-dependent responses in materials that can also arise from materials that are active, like liquid crystal elastomers or shape memory polymers or uh, even shape memory alloys and metals, and then embed those functionality within parts of structured materials. So this increases the complexity, but allows to incorporate in the materials design also this time-dependent response. Uh, so whenever you have an actuation that's time-dependent, uh, it starts to go towards uh, a set of you know, thinking of controls uh, that um, allows for specific deformations. I think distributing controls within the material would make the overall 
uh, robotic system eventually simpler to uh, to design and operate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Great point. So maybe uh, I'm curious to ask you what could be the area or direction you think when it comes to robotics. So you think it's very important, but we don't give much attention. I think your research line is, is yeah, it's still maybe um, not common. It's very interesting and very important, but. How do you see the overall picture of the field? Do you think we are going maybe in the right direction? Or do you think something very interesting or very important and we still we are not addressing in a in, yeah, in practical way, like the, the very important question? This is very important, but we still neglect it. Do you have any sort like that? You know, I'm a, I, 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 I don't consider myself a roboticist. So I, I really do come to the field of robotics, especially soft robotics as a, uh, as a newbie here, I, I, I really try to think about uh, my contribution and my research contribution to the field in uh, as an as a supplement to the existing uh, to the existing robotics tool and, and design tools, which really comes from the material side of things. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, I'm a little biased towards this uh, this concept of of uh, you know incorporating advanced materials and structured materials and uh, responsive materials into into robotic systems that i think in a classical sense have already have, have mostly dwelled into um you know rigid body components with actuators uh, um, hence separating the world of materials from from the world of, of of robot actuation and and structural for example components i think I think we can. We're only scratching the surface of what the merge of this materials design world with the robotics world can achieve. Once we understand how to design, so I think the numerics is a big challenge, and how to um, manufacture uh, this complex robotic system that combine different materials, different responsivity, maybe even different actuation methods that can combine partially soft and partially rigid actuation, and and so on. I think we're only at the very beginning and there is an enormous space for um, for contributing to the field uh, when we learn to combine uh, uh, mm -hmm. materials and, and robotics together. Great, great. So maybe a student could be curious ask you, when you design, because you're curious about designing new material, what what's the first step you think about designing new material? You you have by an inspiration, for example, you speak about that, but I guess you, because you have this, you have deep understanding about this, uh, the designing versus so what's the first step you think about uh, designing new material i think i think there's not a unique answer to that question i think it you know the, the answer is that well, it depends it depends on what problem we are trying to solve right so in general the first step is to ask ourselves what would be interesting what would be revolutionary to have uh, what would be exciting to see a material do for us and, and sometimes it helps to think outside the boxes and uh, to challenge definitions. Like sometimes, you know, when, when 3D printing came about and we started to create uh, these architected materials, the novelty is, is 10, 15 years ago, right? Was we can blur the boundary between uh, what, what the structure is in civil engineering and what a material is in material science or, or solid mechanics, right? We can blur it because we can make structures so small that the material itself becomes a structure. And then what we used to think of a foam now becomes a structured material. And that was, you know, that was a revolution back then because we, we were able to create them with 3D printers. 
you know, now I'm thinking, you know, what blurs the boundary between a material and a robot? You know, what, what is really that distinguish these two things when you start actuating um, mm. deformations locally and allowing materials to change shape by themselves or even locomote and move by themselves? Mm. So challenging definitions and, and challenging, I guess, common, common sense and common knowledge, I think it, it's helpful when, when, when trying to create materials that behave kind of out of the box. And then, of course, the question is, you know, what do we want to challenge exactly? Like, do we want something that uh, all of a sudden um, is able to shape morph in different ways uh, with simple actuation? Or are we trying to do something that can adapt its energy absorption according to the external threats? It, it's, I think it's, again, linked to what is the problem we want to solve? And then let's brainstorm about what kind of architectures we know of from fundamental mechanics would be helpful to begin designing from. And then you iterate from there. Yeah, yeah. And maybe related here, what could be an avoidable trade-off? Something you have to give up in certain maybe problem to your trade design. If you have something in mind, Something you have to give up sometime is, is you can't avoid this trade-off. Do you have a scenario like that, uh, an avoidable trade-off in the design? Yeah, I think the, the in my mind the unavoidable trade-off uh, is uh, accuracy of uh, predictions in computation uh, versus uh, speed and efficiency. Again, I'm going back to this idea of, of finite element, right? Finite element is, a, is, a, is an approach that is known to be exact. We know that you know, it converges. There are theorems that can prove convergence when the mesh refines itself to infinitesimal points to, to the theory of continua, and, and, and it gives exact solutions that are provably right. I think the problem, though, is that when you're looking for such level of exactness, you are trading off the ability to in include complexity into your design, into your element, into your structure, into whatever you are designing. That's where I, at the beginning of this discussion, like I mentioned, you know, reduced order models or, or other approximations where you're going to trade off some of the precisions with, uh, you know, but with the advantage of saying, well, but look at the complexity I can create something that's incredibly hierarchical and interacts, for example, with the fluid and with temperature and so on and so forth, which would just not be feasible in, a, in an exact finite element framework. So that's what I would be willing to, to trade off for, uh, mm -hmm. for design capability. Mm -hmm. Great. So maybe also a quick question about the trade-off because sometimes, for example, any conductive polymer and this category is Sometimes there's sort of between the mechanical performance and the response time. Do you see sometimes the robotics <laughs> is very slow? I, I don't know, maybe it's a, it's a general question. So maybe, yeah, we try to maybe uh, let's see that there's trade-off between the response time for soft robotics and the forces. And maybe a blatant example, an anti-conductive polymer and this, the power and the response time of the mechanical performance, how we can, yeah, solve this problem and make it, yeah, smart material that have the both properties at the same time, the high mechanical performance and response time. Yeah, I, you know, again, that's, that's something that often comes to mind. There's a question of, you know, either you use something that uses very little energy, uh, like I'm thinking again, going back to my own research, we use, we've used in the past liquid crystal elastomers, glacially slow, but, you know, very simple to use in terms of just, you heat them up and they deform, right? But they're very slow, although they require little power. And you know, the forces of actuations are arguably not so high. Mm -hmm. 
I think that we're not at that stage yet to worry about speed and uh, and force amplitude because I think there is still so much we can do in terms of designing better materials, uh, you know, better structures, better robots um, before we can really worry about are they fast enough? Because the question then goes back to, but fast enough for what? You know, if our point is to just demonstrate, uh, I want to create a material that can shape morph. Unless I know exactly what application in an industrial context, in a medical context, or in an architectural context, I want this material to be useful for, I don't need to worry about speed. I can just kind of try to design the material with an actuation to prove a concept that this integration of architecture materials and robotics can lead to advances in the field. You know, only once we pinpoint, okay, I really need to, to make this, this object swim fast, for example, because I need it to deliver mail underwater, you know, then I, I can start worrying about hmm, what kind of faster actuation or what better uh, power performance uh, or power efficiency can I design? I think, I think there are level of, of complexity that you know, one needs to tackle separately. There is the proof of concept that says, I can incorporate soft architected deformable material in a robot and show the um, novelty in the functionalities that such approach would allow. Mm -hmm. And then we can say, now that I know that, for example, I need this for a medical robot, let's try to speed up the actuation to get to where I need to get. And I. And, and I think the way to do that is to, you know, look around the, um, the material science world where people continuously develop active polymers, active materials, active composites, uh, even threads that can be actuated with relatively low power that can, they're starting to become ever more advanced and ever more performing. So maybe, maybe the perfect actuator is not existing today, but that doesn't worry me. I'm, I know I'm trying to solve one problem at a time, and I think uh, the speed and, and, and efficiency of, of, of powering is something that will be tackled in due time. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'm curious about the challenges you try to address in your lab, something very interesting, maybe projects you aspire to yeah, address in, in your lab, and it's still challenging at the same time for, for your research. What could be that? Topics. A challenge on a, in the, you, you mean you're thinking what is the next uh, advanced material? Yeah. My, and my also dream. Also <laughs> the challenges, yeah. Uh, I think you know. I think uh, we have shown mm -hmm. in a lot of the soft robotic system or robotic surfaces and the recent advances that my group has been doing. We have shown that incorporating architectural materials with actuation of different different ways responsiveness mm -hmm. and so on can really lead to surprising functionalities however the next step i would like to see is to try to incorporate in the material a, a feedback so not just say if hot then uh, you know fold mm -hmm. and if hotter then roll that's fine it's i think it shows it proof a point that you can embed responsivity and time dependent control in a material i think it's it's a great start but in the future i would like to see the material respond itself to external stimuli so so try to add a complexity in this response that says well if hot and then pause wait am i hot enough and then try to get effectively some not just the actuation but the sensing part also embedded in the material so we can 
distribute sensing and distribute awareness within mm -hmm. the material itself. I think right now we're good at good. We are able to 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 distribute actu actuation in different parts. Mm -hmm. I, I think what would be really need to see is distribute actuation and mm -hmm. sense so that we can close the loop of uh, controls. That's a very interesting point. I, I'm curious to ask you because when the field will speak of time sensing, embedding sensing is so challenging when it comes to, yeah, if we speak about smart material that like, any conductive polymer can be sensor active at the same time. But if you tell us about the challenging part of what you try to achieve to embed the sensing, what, what are the challenging here? Well, the challenge is that I don't want to embed uh, a, a, a spaghetti balls of wires. So I'm not thinking about embedding sensors by saying, okay, I'm going to put a pressure sensor here, a temperature sensor here, and then a light sensor there, and then have this kind of zoo of wires that are going to be covering my, my poor little uh, soft robot. I think the challenge is to see whether we can have materials that incorporate this responsivity and this sensitivity in the constitutive response themselves. Where I'm thinking of some materials that can self-tune the response by saying, you know, okay, I'm, for example, if I'm hot, then I'm folding, but if it's too hot, then I fold back. Or effectively trying to have a more complex responsivity in the composite that functions as a sensor and functions as a controller unit that then adjusts the behavior of the material locally according to the external stimuli. That of course increases the complexity of the material design even more, mm -hmm. but I think it would be really exciting to see that. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you for saying that. Yeah, so we're closing and have a few questions. The first one, do you think about selection material should be about better functionality or maybe fabrication, easy to fabricate when it comes to decision for that? Well, I'm biased here because I, I definitely have a, a have a, a bigger I find I find it more interesting to to prove new functionality. So I, I'm much more excited to see you know materials behave in an impossible way, in a surprising way. Um, then ask myself, yeah, okay, but how do I make it in a large scale or how do I manufacture it in an industrial setting? I think they're both important, especially especially if you really want to solve a problem in a, in a commercial application. But uh, I guess what drives our own research group is more uh, the quest for new functionalities. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to ask you, do you have any situation like you thought something would work out perfectly in modeling maybe and your thinking and an empirical result was something counterintuitive or surprising result? You didn't expect that. In, oh in oh yeah, I, it happens all the time. I, I mean, I think, I think some of the most exciting, exciting results, uh, um, even in, I'm thinking in the, in the recent past from my own group came from unexplicable experimental behaviors. Like we were trying to get something and we're like, well, this is supposed to be linear. And then all of a sudden this thing is just behaving in a different way. And you start kind of hitting your head around the why, you know, why is the experiment different than what I expect. And, and those sometimes are, the, are the, the why moments are when, when you really, then they turn into wow moment in which the discovery of some really new phenomenon, some, something unexpected, then leads to new functionalities or new devices and, and so on. And, and I think 
I, I can think of you know several examples in my own you know past research where where these things have have led to to exciting new research directions. Yeah, great, great. So maybe I hear a question about the risk and ideas because we speak all the time about the risk and idea and incremental uh, progress, for example. And I'm curious to ask you in your uh, journey about having a risk and idea. Do you have this kind of fear because you need to have publication, for example? How you manage to do that between you, you are so passionate and and curious, and and also yeah, the publication, for example. So if anyone's just a junior in the research and you have risk and idea or you want to do that and yeah, publication pressure here as well. I don't know how you see the situation here. Uh, yeah, I think I think that uh, that answer. You know, had you asked me that question maybe, you know, 15 years ago, the answer would be different. But <laughs> but today, I don't think so much about yeah. that. Um, I think publications are an important step in communicating the findings. I, I think that I think of them as an essential part of our of our job as, as scientists and researcher to communicate to the rest of the world that hey there is this amazing discovery we have we have done but I don't see them as my ultimate goal. In fact I see them as a step in the process that when we find something out, okay, let's write it up and communicate it and, and move on. I so I don't feel this pressure of publishing anymore at all. Mm -hmm. um i think i think i i'm much more excited and you know what gets me up in the morning is really the the, mm. the challenge of saying what are we going to discover today you know wh what's going to be the new idea that uh, that uh, that the lab can uh, can tackle and 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 that comes from interacting with amazing students and postdocs that are uh, that we're really fortunate to have at caltech yeah. um I think, of course, that was different when I was at the beginning of my career, when I was an assistant professor, you know, it was clear that I shouldn't just pursue fantastic ideas. I should also show that there is a certain level of progress. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so maybe at the, at the very beginning, um, the first couple of years in my, in my tenure track, I chose to pursue projects that were, I was fairly secure of being able to complete you know just maybe they were exciting but they weren't departing too wildly out of my comfort zone of you know background knowledge and maybe phd work and so on but i became ever more daring you know with as the years passed and and now you know the question of publishing is really not even in my mind uh, yeah. really anymore I think it's important for the students and and the postdocs so that you know they themselves can start a career and so on but yeah uh, yeah absolutely yeah yeah and maybe I'm curious about maybe a moment in your research was challenging and turned us to ultimate success do you have any moment challenging in the research you do or ideas and yeah and turn <laughs> the ultimate success you know, I can't think of any project that didn't go through multiple stages of challenges and despair. I, I cannot think of a single one that didn't have challenges. I think, you know, I like to describe the research projects as, as, as kind of like this wave of like really deep valley of, of, of nothingness in which you try this, it doesn't work, you try that, it doesn't work, you have another idea, it doesn't work either. And, and you just kind of get stuck, right? You try to run the code and something is just not, you know, there is this glitch that doesn't get resolved no matter what you do. And I feel like they're more often than not the norm 
there is only you know once in a while that you solve everything and all the planets align and and all of a sudden you have this yes you know it's working we just we just made something new and 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 those are rare but you know they have like these really high peaks and then there are the deep valleys <laughs> you just I, I think it's just how research is yeah yeah and uh, maybe you are what's maybe the most important quality you have gained while being uh, in this journey and you have to maintain most important <laughs> resilience <laughs> i think i think uh, you know, I, I, how uh, dealing with this requires resilience, uh, but resilience is, you know, if it's paired with passion, it's almost a, an unbeatable combination. I think, uh, you know, if you're excited about what you do, you're passionate about this, uh, you become resilient in when, when tra- traversing these valleys of failures, right? And, and I think just being aware and cognizant that, uh, this is just how science works. So uh, if you are in one of this valley, you know, move over, do another thing, uh, go hiking or start another project. Mm-hmm. And when you come back or you return to that, uh, to that valley, you probably have fresher ideas. So the ability to, to reinvert yourself and, and adjust dynamically to the, to the adversities, I think uh, it's something that I find to be most useful. Wonderful, wonderful, yeah. And lastly, what was the best advice I was giving to you and was the life changing? Wait, wait, what is the best advice I was given uh, to? Yeah, and was the life changing? And was it life changing? That's the yeah. question. Hmm, that's a good one. You know, I think initially when I when I was a student and even when I was a when I was a a, a, a beginner a graduate student. I wasn't sure I wanted to be in science. Mm. I think I was lucky to have many mentors that instilled in me this love for science, this passion for pursuing the unknown and for for asking challenging questions, but they can also have uh, you know reachable answers. And and I think I don't think there was one advice that I was given that has changed my life, but I think it was the constant support of these mentors, the constant feedback that I got from from many people throughout my career that uh, really nurtured uh, nurtured my growth. And and I think I feel very lucky to have had uh, exceptionally good mentors and, and colleagues and peers uh, throughout uh, you know my different stages of uh, academic life. Wonderful. Yeah. And may I ask you if you have any final words you'd like to say for the robotics community? Any final words you'd like to say? <laughs> I, I think soft robotics is really a, a new frontier that challenges uh, us in many different ways from uh, fundamental materials advances to controls uh, and applications. And uh, I hope many of the younger people will become interested in it and will join, uh, join the force. <laughs> Thank you. So thank you once again, Professor Kiara. It was very inspiring. And thank you for doing this great work and an inspiration for students and me. And Seth, thank you. It's such an honor to have you. Thank you. Thanks, Marwa. It's great to, to meet you and uh, to be part of this. Thank you. Thanks thank you. Thank you.